welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. On this episode, J.F. and I discuss Ishmael Reed's 1972 novel Mumbo Jumbo. Mumbo Jumbo is a lot of things. A madcap satire of race in America, a secret alternative history of the 1920s, a cosmic conspiracy theory, but maybe most of all, it's a book about music. Music is the aesthetic and spiritual impulse behind this novel. The story concerns a plague called Just Grew that causes people to dance and party with fleshy abandon. Just Grew is the power of music to move bodies and raise up the soul. It's actually not a plague at all, but an anti-plague. Quote, Some plagues caused the body to waste away. Just Grew enlivened the host. Other plagues were accompanied by bad air, malaria. Jess Grew victims said that the air was as clear as they had ever seen it, and that there was the aroma of roses and perfumes which had never before enticed their nostrils. Some plagues arise from decomposing animals, but Jess Grew is electric as life and is characterized by ebullience and ecstasy. Terrible plagues were due to the wrath of God, but Jess Grew is the delight of the gods. End quote. Every 20 or 30 years, it seems, there will be an outbreak of Jess Grew, and thousands will be swept up in a joyful ecstasy that the guardians of white supremacy will anxiously try to repress. But never completely, and never for long, for how can anyone prevail against the power of music itself? And not just any music, but music with the black mud sound. I'm not going to try to explain exactly what the black mud sound is, and we do talk a little bit about it in what follows, But in passing, I'll note Reed's sly humor in repurposing Sigmund Freud's famous warning to Carl Jung about the black mud tide of occultism. However we might define the black mud sound, we can certainly find examples of it in the music that came out within a year or so of this novel's release. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack for Superfly, There's a Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone, Black Moses by Isaac Hayes, On the Corner by Miles Davis. There must have been something in the air. Maybe Jess Grew was having a moment, shimmying into manifestation through all this amazing music and articulating itself as a full-blown theory of art through the medium of Ishmael Reed's writing. I'm thinking about this stuff as I contemplate the recently announced passing of the hip-hop artist MF Doom. I don't usually pay much attention to celebrity deaths, but this one knocked me back a little. I wonder if Doom read mumbo-jumbo. It seems like his sense of humor. And Doom definitely knew a thing or two about Jess Grew. It snakes its way through his rhymes, which juke and move and swing like a dancer, 
so nasty that it's probably somewhat of a travesty having me. Then he told the people, you can call me your majesty. So nasty that it's probably somewhat of a travesty having me. Then he told the people, you can call me your majesty. Keep your battery charged. He know it won't stick, yo. And it's not his fault you kick slow. Should've let your trick hold, chick hold your sick glow. Plus nobody couldn't do nothing once he let the brick go. And you know I know that's a bunch of snow. The beat is so butter. Peep the slow cutter as he uttered a calm flow. Don't talk about my mom, Joe. Sometimes he rhymes quick, sometimes he rhymes slow, or vice versa. That's the real Black Mud sound right there. The track is called All Caps, from Mad Villainy, Doom's collaboration with the producer Madlib. It doesn't really have much to do with mumbo-jumbo, but when I was writing this intro, I was nagged by a feeling that I was leaving something out, that I had forgotten something essential. And then I realized it's the music that's missing. An hour-plus of conversation about Just Grew and Reed's marvelous novel would miss the point entirely without at least a few seconds of grooving. That's the thing about Just Grew. It doesn't move us by appealing to sober reason, but by direct action on our bodies. It cannot be reduced to a message. It is not awaiting its translation into manifestos and white papers. Music is its own logos. During the early 70s Just Grew pandemic, Funkadelic released an album titled Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow, but they could as easily have put it the other way round. Music frees your ass, and the mind trots along behind, trying to keep up. Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo is one of the only things I've ever read where mind and ass work together in perfect harmony. No novel does the work of music so faithfully as this one. It hangs out in a zone with Albert Murray's Stomp in the Blues and Doom's Mad Villainy, where words dance and music speaks. to say about this book uh it's about the word important is not an interesting word saying it's a very important work of african-american literature from the 1970s makes it sound much more dull than it really is an important book it's a vibrant book an exciting book a funny book a racy book uh it's this a revolutionary book really a I revolutionary mean, in the book. real sense of the term right Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just got it all. Yeah. This is one of my favorite novels and has been for quite a while. And I've taught it on at least one occasion. I taught it as part of that music and esoteric studies seminar that I taught back in 2018. And um, really wanted to return to it and give it the old weird studies treatment, whatever that is. So what did you think about it? I loved it. This was my first time reading it. Um Ishmael Reed is a, a fascinating poet, writer, thinker, magician, wizard. I think we'll get to that. This book, of all the books we've covered so far, I think this one is most explicitly a magical working. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. It, it is a spell. You could even go back and look at the history of the United States since this book came out and notice you could probably make a case for how this book subterraneanly changed things. Um, yes. It, it exerted uh, 
what Deleuze and Guattari would call a minor influence that changed things without anyone noticing. Mm. Um, it's it's a powerful novel and it's playful. That's the thing. It's playful. It's funny. It's affirmative. It's musical. It's poetic. Mm. It's bonkers. It's completely wild and crazy. It's totally um, unhinged in the best yeah. sense. An unrestrained book. Yeah. And it's a scream, a scream in the wilderness. It's like uh, prophetic. Um, yeah. And I was completely blown away by this book. Just loved every every word in it. And I'm so happy we're doing it. And I'm so happy that you made me read it because I would, probably would have easily lo- overlooked this book. I think even for people who are really all about American literature, this is not necessarily the best known book. Um, It's too strange and too idiosyncratic, I think, ever to be one of those books that everybody reads in high school or college, for that matter, Um, which isn't to say that it's unknown. I think it's a very widely respected book. I think Harold Bloom put it on his list of the canonical works of the Western literary tradition. Um, So it's a book that definitely has a, a critical following, but it's one of those books that has maybe a wider readership among critics and intellectuals and academics than, you know, among just ordinary readers. And that might indicate that it's a book in a kind of a difficult literary modernist style. And I suppose compared to more straightforward narrative fiction, it is kind of difficult by comparison. And yet at the same time, not difficult at all. It's not trying to play modernist games of alienation. It's a book that is fun to read. It's a storyteller's book. It, it really yeah. is just a great yarn written in a language that really is the author's own, right? So in that sense, it's challenging. And I can imagine some people kind of just you know, tapping out because of just the strangeness and wildness of the narrative. But it's definitely worth the effort. If you're just, if you start reading it and you're going, where, what is this? Um, It's almost a little bit um, farcical or uh, satirical. It's definitely satirical. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, And so your tolerance for satire becomes a key factor. But it's not ultimately, I think, a satire. I think it's a... It's a hyperstition. And mm. Um, mm. that becomes quite clear towards the end where the the prestige occurs. You know, in the magical act, the prestige is the moment where the trick is revealed. And right. it's a cosmic book that's trying to do something with the cosmos. And you've just been privy to that. And uh, you, you didn't you've even know You've just been it. inducted into yeah. it. Yeah. It's like you that. You get Neil- to the end and you realize that you've been initiated. You had no idea that that's what that was. Yeah. That that's what was going on. It's uh, again, I'm reminded of that blurb that Neil Gaiman gave uh, Robert Aikman, right? Uh, Mm. It's like watching a magician do a wonderful trick, uh, but by the end you're you're, you're blown away, but you don't know what the trick was. (laughs) Yeah. It's like one of those. Would it be premature to ask what the prestige is for you? Would it make sense for us to jump to the end and then work our way yeah, back? I think that that's fine because it's it, it, I can I can explain it quickly. Uh, for me, the prestige is the secret history, the, the the gnostic history of the world towards the end of the book, where um, the kind of wild shenanigans of the novel suddenly cohere and come together in this uh, scriptural prophecy, an Afrocentric reinterpretation of history 
it's not like, oh, I'm finally being told the real history of the world. It's you're being told a myth that changes your world. Yes. And uh, that to me is the prestige. It's towards the end when we get the story of uh, the reinvention of the Osiris and Set myth in light of a worldview that doesn't fall for the Eurocentric gimmick, right? It, yeah. It looks at things from this new angle. And mm-hmm. regardless of whether the historical details are correct, and there's no effort to be historically accurate here, like uh, ancient peoples are referred to doing things that only modern people would do. And there's, there's kind right. of a playfulness there. But yeah. it, regardless of that, the myth itself is doing its work, whether or not you believe that this is quote unquote, real history. So yeah. the, it's a, a new myth is born and therefore a new world, a new way of being, a new possibility for, for the US, for America, for the world uh, becomes available to us at the end of the book. Which the book itself tells us of its capacity for doing precisely that when it talks, okay, one of the running motifs in this book is loas, like the voodoo idea of the loa. Uh, a spirit, spirit yeah. that a religious person, and by religious, I don't necessarily mean what people think of religious, you know, when they hear that word, maybe you think of somebody sitting obediently in a pew somewhere, listening to a preacher give a, a sermon, not that kind of religious, but a kind of religion of what is often called the profane, you know, the pleasure of movement and dancing and sex and getting down, um, that is conceived as a religious experience. From a Eurocentric uh, perspective, we would say like Dionysian, right? Right, But in this case, it becomes Osirian and uh, Dionysus becomes a disciple. He does point out that Dionysus is Osiris's loyal friend and homeboy. Who, yeah, who exported the religion to Greece. The religion meaning the choreography, the dance. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, the novel hinges on a kind of dualism, a kind of... um, dichotomy of the real religions of the world and the atonism of Christianity and monotheism in general. Um, atonism, uh, it comes from the word aton, uh, an Egyptian word which means the solar disk, the circle of the sun. Uh, some listeners will be yep. familiar with Akhenaten, the famous Egyptian pharaoh who created the first monotheist cult in which he was the uh, prophet and possibly God. So, the Atonists for Reed represent everything that went wrong with world history. And the voodoo religion in the book is uh, the kind of like last bastion of the old religion, the old way of doing things. And so there's a war between two religious factions in the book, uh, the Atonist solar religion, and I guess what you could call the lunar, um, in the Wilson sense of the word, the lunar pagan uh, real religion of the earth, right? Right. Which is also mapped onto a notion of the one and the many. The Atonists being intolerant of any kind of plurality. Right. Never wanting to share, you know, so like a musical performance by Atonists is going to be one in which the audience sits quietly and applauds at the appointed times and does not play along with the musicians. There's one focus of your attention, and that is the musician up on stage, as opposed to a plurality where, like, anybody who's there on the scene is part of, I, I guess, uh, in deluso Gutarian language, is an assemblage. Right. Correct. And I guess this is a good place for us to bring up Jess Grew and the kind of plot. Before the... we do, I want to 
tie off a loose end that I left dangling a moment ago, mm-hmm. precisely because of this inbuilt plurality of the subterranean Osirian religion that's been fighting against the Atonists for thousands of years, precisely by virtue of its plurality, it manifests as a polytheist kind of religion, as for example in Voodoo, where you have different loas or spirits that are divided into different houses or nations. And one of the points that one of the characters makes, one of the high-end voodoo practitioners who it turns out is kind of directing history quietly from the sidelines, he points out that new loas can come into existence. And in fact, they they talk about the radio loa, because this novel is set in the 1920s. Radio is a new thing. And radio is a a carrier for just group, which you just mentioned, and we'll get back to in a second. But this idea that we can have new loas, you know, that in this carrier stratum of Osirian religion, the old religion, give me that old time religion, there is always room for one more. Yeah. And the book itself is performing that. It is creating a new loa. Yes. It's creating a new dance. Hyperstition. In, yeah, exactly. To translate and what, what the term, right? That's yeah, exactly what you it. Said, hyperstition, exactly. Yeah. And so you're quite right. When you get to the end of The Prestige, this story, the backstory that makes sense of everything that's come in the previous 160 pages, um, what's amazing about it is not just that all of a sudden so many ends of the story have been tied together and we understand that there's this kind of cosmic conspiracy that's been going on for all of human history, a war in heaven so to speak, between the Atonists and the Osirians. Um, it's not just that. It's the awareness that you've been inducted into that conflict too. And the book is giving you a choice. Are you with the Atonists or are you with Jess Grew? And the book is, uh, as you say, it's a hyperstition. It invites you to feed this new Loa that the book is bringing into existence to undergo the work, capital W work, which is the business of engaging with the spirits, with the Loas and feeding them, honoring them and letting them ride us and possess us, take us to the places that we need to go. The book is actually doing that to us. And that is an amazing feat. That's an amazing trick for a work of modern fiction to do. What's this story about? Yeah, what's this story about? So um takes place in the 1920s. On the eve, I think, at the beginning of Warren Harding's presidency, although the parallels between Harding and Nixon are clear throughout. So he, he he's clearly writing about the 1920s, but infusing a lot of 70s and 60s stuff in there and creating yeah. this kind of a hyper-historical new space. Yep. But anyways, takes place in the 1920s, mainly in New York. 
uh, and it's an alternate history in which a plague is um, ravaging the U.S., slowly moving up towards New York, and the plague is called Jess Grew. It's, it's, I guess, modeled on the Danse Macabre, right? Those strange dancing epidemics of the Middle Ages. Jess Grew is basically a disease that makes white folks dance, and black folks uh, makes people makes dance and dance. have fun and enjoy life. <laughs> it makes people yeah. happy, and yeah. uh, and its vectors are jazz music, ragtime, you know, um, all of the artistic movements that characterize the African-American community at that time. So he's commenting on the influence of black America on white America and how that was becoming quite clear in the 1920s and how some people, obviously, a kind of racist superstructure would react to that and see it as a kind of plague. There's no shortage of examples in history of people reacting to jazz music and ragtime and that sort of thing as though it were a kind of plague. Oh, yes. Um, right? So he's just basically reifying that, making that Okay, it it was a plague. It was a kind of magical, strange illness that was spreading and transforming America. And the the main character, Papa Labas, or I guess uh, it's a French word, Papa Laba, which means father over there. He is an Uga, a voodoo priest in New York, and he becomes uh, involved in this through the search for a particular text that is the sacred uh, artifact towards which this plague is coming. It's like kind of coming for it in a way. It's yeah. connected to it's the plague. It's seeking in some its way. text. Yeah, right. As they say in this book. Yeah. And then it develops into a essentially kind of conspiracy thriller. Reminiscent of William Burroughs' work, I found, uh, very uh, reminiscent of Naked Lunch, the same type of weird, bonkers, satirical conspiracy. And so there's a battle going on, uh, a struggle between these vying forces as to who will get the text uh, and what this text is. And uh, it's at the end that the nature of the text is revealed to us. Yeah, and and so you have... uh, Papa Labas and his ally, Black Herman, who are the kind of protagonists. There's a whole bunch of characters. And then on the other side, you have um, Von Vampton. Yes. Hinkle? Hinkle Von Vampton. Hinkle Von Vampton, who is is an obvious play on Carl Van Vechten, a white writer who lived in Harlem in the 1920s, was a big advocate of the Harlem Renaissance and wrote fiction about black people's lives, but highly controversial figure because he was a bit of a decadent himself. Right. And uh, was uh, distrusted by many people within the Harlem Renaissance as somebody who was importing his own kind of decadent concerns into something that really wasn't about that. Right. Uh, And that comes out in a number of satirical touches where Von Vampton just seems like some kind of undead vampire feasting on snakes and toad eggs and fucking all kinds of weird, creepy, crawly things that he gets his assistant to find for him. Well, he's definitely uh, an atonist. Uh, and so yeah. he's on the wrong side of history. Right. And the other thing is he's about a thousand years old because he was one of the last Knights Templar. 
uh, right. the ones who escaped the dissolution of the Templar order in the 14th century, and he made off with the text, as it turns out. So he's working against Jeskru, the plague. He's working to stop it, but he's got one foot in the other world, right? He's, he's very much aware of how the Osirian world works. And then he works for the Wallflower Order. Is that it? This, yeah. this group, yeah. this, this group of kind of uh, white American controllers who are very, very worried about the plague and they task von Vampton with stopping it. And of course, there's a scheme and the scheme ultimately, well, succeeds and fails at the same time. But So it's a kind of conspiracy thing, an occult thriller of the kind of like, I guess you'd say like Dan Brown took a page from this book. Uh, <laughs> it has the kind of, or Foucault's Pendulum, right? These international cult conspiracy thrillers. Or it's Illuminatus. A, it's, Right, Illuminati. Robert Anton Wilson, I was thinking of the whole time, although this book is infinitely superior in its literary quality. I've always thought that Illuminatus is kind of a shitty book. Sorry, I'm sure it has a lot of fans who listen to this show. Never read it. Um, uh, But but this book, I feel like, is doing something somewhat similar. And I guess Illuminatus, like Robert Anton Wilson, definitely was inspired by Willem Burroughs, who uh, was probably one of the earlier instantiations of this sort of thing in the 50s with Naked Lunch. Um, which we have well, to do Well, you know, it's the kind of thing where you're writing a novel about these vast conspiracies, you know, wheels within wheels, where you have double agents or you have complicated, ambiguous figures like Von Vampton, who on the one hand is working against Jess Grew, but on the other hand is no friend of the Wallflower Order. All of these machinations take place against a background of America in the 1920s, into which actual historical details have been cunningly woven, but given new significance or different significance. Mm-hmm. This is a trick that all of these authors were name-checking do. So in Illuminatus, which was written in the early 70s and is definitely huffing the fumes of that 60s counterculture, uh, you know, one little detail that stands out to me in how... Robert Anton Wilson plays this out is the do you, do you know the band the MC5? Yeah. And their and their famous album Kick Out the Jams. Yeah. Uh so MC5 famously militant 60s rock band from Detroit claimed by both punks and metalheads as a kind of uh original band like a an originating force of their music. It's a heavy band that put down, as they said in the 60s, a heavy political rap. And their most famous song is called Kick Out the Jams. And in Illuminatus, there's this whole story about, I forget all the details, but there's like an ancient secret order who we are told at some point in their history, centuries ago, there was like this schism and one schismatic sect is called the Jams. And the main part of this order takes up the slogan, kick out the jams, meaning kick them out of the order. And that phrase has been picked up by this song by the MC5. And this, so it's an actual song that exists, but then you come up with this occult conspiracy backstory for that little historical detail. Right. There should be a name for what that move is, but in any event, this is a move that Ishmael Reed does 
countless yeah, times it's a kind in this book. Of, it's a kind of, I've been using the word reify. It's a kind of reification, but not really. It's a spiritualization or platinization of a bunch of different things into one thing. And that's kind of what conspiracy theory hinges on. It's always about taking a bunch of disparate things and saying all these things are connected because of this new thing that I'm revealing to you, the Rosicrucian order. And th- yeah. that explains all these weird coincidences. So you 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 bring in a new Loa, essentially. You yes. create a spirit that connects all these things and shows us how all these varied things, as disparate as they are in actual chronological fact, are in fact connected spiritually in a, on a, in a higher sense. And that's, that's yes. the beauty of conspiracy fiction, okay? It, it's different when it becomes conspiracy theory. Right. Um, Although maybe it inevitably does become conspiracy theory. Maybe it tends towards, Mm -hmm. this is something I've been thinking about, and maybe this is a great time to bring this up, actually. Um, My wife's writing partner, brilliant mind, has been watching Hellier. And she found herself unable to continue watching because it came clear at one point for her that there was very little distance left between what the Hellier folks were doing and what the QAnon folks are doing. The danger of going from an openness to mind-blowing realities or possibilities to the mind-blowing possibilities are the facts. Right. It's, it's a really easy, slippery slope that takes you there. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely the danger with this sort of thing, whether it's expressed through fiction or through magic or through whatever. I mean, we on the show are constantly making bizarre connections, right? Or at least yes. entertaining such things. Uh, and- there is the question of when it becomes an issue, right? A serious problem as QAnon clearly is. So I think that this hyperstitious take on it is essential because what Robert Anton Wilson was doing was fabulating connections. He was he was f- coming up with essences, forms that would explain history without ever making the extra move of saying this is the true history, right? But a lot of Robert Anton Wilson readers end up believing that that's the true history, right? So that that those things are actual fact. And it led to- Do they? Well, I mean, you can trace the whole thing about the Illuminati today. Uh, There are lots of people who believe the Illuminati is a real force. That comes from him, right? Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah. uh, It starts playful and then it gets serious. And it gets weird in a bad way. Because we don't know how to think hyperstitiously. Uh, We we don't know how to think magically. It's funny how magical thinking is always kind of... uh, um, derided. Derided. Proffered as kind of the, the worst way of going about. But no, it's, it's actually magical thinking in the real sense means being able to distinguish between facts and forms. Right, so mm. uh, uh, the the facts in the matter might be one thing; the form is another, which is another way people misunderstand Plato. They also conflate facts and forms. When Plato says there's a form of blue, he's not saying there's an other blue somewhere that that <laughs> that makes all the things that are blue in this world blue. He says that the fact that there are many different blue things occasions the perception of the form of blue, which is present in all blue things. It's a very subtle but essential difference. And it's the difference between conspiracy fiction and hyperstition and conspiracy theory. 
mm. and a, a kind of weird fanaticism that accompanies that in most cases. So what uh, Reed is doing in this book, which is admirable, is he's making sense of a history that otherwise makes no sense. Yeah. It's just a whole bunch of different shit and it's all horrible. So he's trying to find what are the threads? What threads can I pick up? How can I fabulate this into something that makes sense, into a myth? He's never once saying, these are the facts. And he's not engaging with the forces that he's opposing on that level at all. He's engaging the spirit of work with a spirit of play, the spirit of factuality with a spirit of fantasy. And because it's in the spirit of fantasy that new things become possible for mm. the factual world. But it's in, yeah. it's, in, it's in fabulation that possibilities that seem completely uh, inaccessible to us become accessible. And so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess I'll ask uh, Kate to listen to this and see what she thinks, because for me, the folks in Hellier uh, are doing exactly what should be done. They never once clamp down on a conclusion. They remain yeah. open. They remain open to things that might be scary and weird and bonkers to us. But that openness is certainly not something we should uh, frown upon because we don't, we don't have access to the master key that would tell us what is and isn't possible. So right. when you're presented with fantastical realities, then being open to fantastical possibilities just seems like rigorous science to me. <laughs> Mm. The difference is that it's the people who say, uh, it's the Pleiadians who are communicating with us and they're telling us that the great blue balloon will collide with the earth on, you know, January 12th, 2023. That's when the truth of poets becomes the truth of accountants, as uh, <laughs> Werner Herzog likes to say. Yeah. In a way, the conspiracy mind or the conspiracy way of thinking is simply how magic manifests in a human life because the whole thing about magic is correspondences rather than causality or like a logic of participation rather than a logic of causality. Right. That's important. You know, you can have two things that don't have a causal relationship with one another. To use a simple example, you, you know, tarot reading and then the event that the tarot reading foretells. You experience those two things as connected, not causally, uh, not in a linear way, but, you know, you experience them as participating in a common something. Right. Essence seems like the wrong word for it, but you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, people say synchronicity, which is a fine word, which I use plenty, but I also like the word resonance. And, you know, resonance has been for a long time and in a lot of different cultures, a way of understanding the nature of a, a magical link, the way things that are magically connected relate to one another. Yeah, I mean, Marcelo Ficino uses this metaphor repeatedly in his three books on life. You know, you strum a lute and then another lute will resonate in sympathy. Now, what he wouldn't have known is the way we can understand that causally, that, you know, wiggling air molecules actuated by one lute will push the strings and set up a resonance. But from like a commonplace experience, what you have is two things happening in sympathy rather than first this happens, then this happens, like the way dominoes fall. Yeah. And sympathy is the key word, right? When it comes sympathy. to resonance. Sympathy right. is the, the occult word that's used often also yes. to represent. Sympathy means uh, suffering together, 
feeling yeah. together. The things feel together. the same. There's an aesthetic core to the concept of sympathy, which you can't take out. Sympathy is an aesthetic phenomenon. You feel right. that two things are connected. Yes. And I guess conspiracy theory is the mistaking of the synchronistic or the resonant or the sympathetic yeah. for a causal relationship. And you know, one of the one of the writers that I know who most skillfully walks that line between synchronicity and causality is a fellow named Jason Horsley, who's written a number of books that I quite enjoyed, even though I don't by any means um, agree with everything he says. Um, he is in one sense a conspiracy theorist, but in another sense, it's more like he's writing about the conspiracy of the unconscious. He's talking about how those parts of ourselves that we don't want to face, the parts of humanity we don't want to acknowledge, um, act as a kind of conspiratorial force in history, which I don't think is that outlandish, to be honest. But anyways, the reason why I enjoy his work, as opposed to the work of virtually every other conspiracy theorist I've read, is that he walks that line. He's aware of the existence, of the importance of that other side, that side that has to do with the imaginal, with synchronicity, with symbol, with metaphor. And um, that gives a subtlety to his work that makes it worth reading. I recommend his latest book, um, 16 Maps of Hell, an exploration of the dark underbelly of Hollywood. And that's putting it mildly. If you want to know what I mean, check it out. I like what you said about how magical thinking, as much as it's become just a common or can't word for a sloppy and superstitious style of thinking, actually in the hands of its proper practitioners, a very sophisticated style of thinking that would allow us not to make that mistake in the first place. Hold on for a second. I want to find a passage. Sure. So this is a passage from SSOTBME or Sasatbami. Um Lionel Snell slash Ramsey Duke's wonderful and foundational work on magic and magic as a system of thought or a way of being in the world as even a philosophy, although that's not quite the right word. One of the chapters in that, chapter five, Fantasy Worlds, deals with something that is familiar to practitioners and scholars of the Western esoteric tradition, the idea that there are different planes that there's a material plane, but also an imaginal plane or an etheric plane, you know, that there are different realms or worlds. And the magician is working with one world in order to influence another. So to return to meditations on the tarot, which we were discussing most recently in our Empress episode, early in that chapter on the Empress, the anonymous author of meditations writes that what magic always comes down to is the subtle ruling the gross. And we could say, you know, that the magician is working with subtle realms or on subtle planes, etheric planes or imaginal planes in order to affect change in the grosser, more material plane that we are accustomed to thinking of as reality. So that's something that the author of Meditations on the Tarot says. And that is certainly in line with all kinds of magical theory. And what Lionel writes in Sotmi is about how the magician has to keep these planes separate, mm. you know, for, for the magician's will to be properly manifested. And I'm going to read a passage. This is on page 62 of the most recent edition of Sotmi. 
Just as magic theory avoids tangled arguments about causality by allowing causal connections to be total, and uh, this, I, I'm not going to explain what he means by that, but it sort of links up with what we've been saying about sympathy or resonance. So does it avoid existence arguments by assuming that everything exists? Although this immediately saves the magician from perplexing discussions as to whether the flying pink elephants that haunt him are real or not, and if not, why it needs a real psychiatrist to banish them, it is also a potentially dangerous step. For a universe in which everything exists is a much larger and more confusing one. In it, a muddled thinker might try to open a door with the memory of a key, buy freedom in a shop, settle an argument with a dagger, or feed his cats on love. In fact, it is very necessary to have some sort of map or guide in such a universe. Yeah, fantastic. That reminds me of the Stoic theory of incorporeals. Um, and let's admit it, I mean, a lot of the magical tradition in the West comes from Stoicism. Um it had a huge influence on the ancient world and on esoteric thinking in the first few centuries of our era. And um, one of the things the Stoics did that was quite ingenious was they posited that the world was composed of corporeals, so things that have a body, because the Stoics were essentially materialists. And the world is also composed of incorporeals, things that don't exist, but that are real. Um, they insist like the love you feed your dog, right? Mm -hmm. um, the love is a word we give to a whole bunch of different things, some psychochemical processes, historical happenstance, all kinds of different things that don't have a little tag that says love on them combined to form love, right? And the love is the sense of my feeding my dog and taking care of, of her. It doesn't exist. You won't find it anywhere, but it insists. It is absolutely essential to understanding reality. And I think that's kind of what Snell's getting at there, that everything exists in the sense that there are different planes at which things are real. You know? Right. And you have, to, you have to be able to navigate these planes, but also to keep them separate. Yes. And, and not actually like try to come up with some material love you could put in the mouth of your dog. You have to know how like... These things resonate at different levels, metaphorically and symbolically. Yep. We think that magical thinking is resulting in QAnon and people who are taking that fundamentally aesthetic sensation of connection, of resonance, of sympathy, and reifying it or crystallizing it in theories of actual actions in the material world. Causal things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so they are like the person who is trying to feed their cat on love. Like on the word They're, love. Like they'll, they'll yeah, write the, love on yeah. a piece of paper and jam it down their cat's throat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that, it's that kind of thing. So in fact, what you don't need is less magical thinking to avoid problems like QAnon. You need more, but like more learned, more intelligent, more skilled. And this is something that comes up repeatedly in Mumbo Jumbo, the distinction between left hand and right hand path yes. between um, the Ungan, who is a real magician and the mere sorcerer, the Bokor, yeah. who is, uh, to bring it back to meditations on the tarot, the right hand path is the path of sacred magic. It is authorized by the Loas. It is unselfish and motivated by 
this fundamentally loving force, Jess Grew, in this novel. Whereas the Bokors are trying to capture that power and instrumentalize it to use it for their own purposes. And for Ishmael Reed, that is what the Atonist order has done all along. It's not quite true that the Atonists simply want to stop people from singing and dancing. They don't just want to stop the dance and music contagion that is Jess Grew. They want to control it. They have just enough connection with it. This is why von Vampton is an important figure, somebody who is from the Knights Templar who are developed both in this book and also in the lore of the Knights Templar as having a foot both in the Christian world, but also in the mysterious Orient, to use that old trope. Uh, parenthetically, just for people who don't know, the Knights Templar were an order of knights founded to protect the Holy Land after the one of the first crusades, I can't remember which one. They became extremely powerful in Europe. They became an international banking cartel, essentially. And uh, eventually, Philip IV of France and uh, Clement the something, uh, one of the popes, got together to get rid of them because they'd become a problem. And they were tried and accused of all kinds of bizarre things, of engaging in uh, Islamic magic, of trafficking with sorcerers and alchemists uh, of the non-approved kind. Obscene of, rites. Obscene rites that involved the worship of uh, a god called Baphomet that became an, a key figure in modern occultism. The kissing of a cat's anus as part of their, their version of the uh, Eucharist. <laughs> uh, and all kinds of things. And as, as silly as, as most of these accusations probably were, there was probably um, some occult activity going on. And there definitely was dialogue going on between the Templars and various Islamic sects of esoteric uh, yeah. practitioners. And so Reed takes that lore and weaves it into this larger occult conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, but like a conspiracy story. Right. But he weaves those ideas into this general idea of like left-hand path, right-hand path. The Templars are magicians and they're capable of using the same powers as the true magicians, the Ungan. But their left-hand path, they're selfish. They're, well, yeah. they, they're, they are given over to an ethos of control, which brings us closer to Burroughs again. I mean, like the idea of the control society is everywhere in this novel. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Reed claims in, his, in the myth at the end of the book, uh, Reed writes that the Templars found the, the Book of Thoth, which was basically the book in which the original good religion of Osiris was written down, like the dance moves and that sort of thing was put in this book and the book was yeah. lost. Interestingly, it suggests that the Book of Thoth is a book illustrating the dance moves. That's actually right. important. I mean, we have this idea that the Book of Thoth would be arcane pictures of important symbolic things. But here it's reimagined as like, oh no, this is the choreography. This is a lab notation yeah. for the Jess Grew dances. And like the Logos is dance. That's an interesting twist. Right. Excellent. Yeah, for sure. Super or The Logos twist. is music and dance because they're really not separable. And it gets lost because of Moses. Moses fucks it all up. Um, and uh, the book ends up being lost and the Templars find it. But when they read the book, they can't understand it. They distort its content because of their Atonist left-hand orientation. So they fuck it all up. And that reminded me of uh, William Blake's famous line in a poem he wrote for a priest. He's like, both you and I read, I, I'm paraphrasing, both of us read Bible day and night, 
but you read black where I read white. Um, so it's like, it's the same words. We're reading the same book, but we're getting totally different things because of our attitudes, because of our attitudes. I mean, I, I probably the best exemplification of that weird dichotomy, which is part of reality, the way two people can see the same thing and interpret them in completely different ways is the story of Cain and Abel who are the first real humans, the first humans to be born of other humans in the Bible. Two brothers, one's a shepherd, one's a a farmer, Cain, and uh, they both get visited by God and they both see the wonder of creation in the same way. But one of them feels, wow, I want more of this, yes to this. And the other one's like, I'm not going to trust this thing that I'm seeing. I'm going to keep the best for myself and only give God, meaning reality, the stuff I can part with, whereas Abel gives the best of his sheep. And and of course, Abel is rewarded by the real, whereas Cain becomes a seething, boiling abscess of resentment, kills his brother, <laughs> and then is doomed to wander in a desert for eternity. So that it's basically the same story as uh, Set and Osiris. Osiris, the open brother who says yes, Set being the resentful brother who says no to creation, and... Um, and the whole drama yeah. starts yeah. there. Osiris permits, set controls. They're both given the same facts, and it's the attitude that determines where things go. By the way, one of my favorite little moments where Reed does that thing that I was talking about with Robert Anton Wilson, but I feel like he does it with much greater subtlety and wit, um, that thing of taking historical facts or historical accounts or things that historical figures have said and weaving it into this grand conspiratorial narrative in the part of the the prestige, that long 30-page story within a story that explains this millennia-long occult war in heaven, this conspiracy that has been pulling the strings of all of the activities in history, the bit of that story that gets to Moses and what Moses does when he learns on false pretenses, the songs and dances of Osiris, the black mud sound. And we should talk about that, the the connection yeah, of Freud. Not the Freud, yeah. 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 The black mud sound, like he wants to get the black mud sound and Moses is actually a pretty good musician. So he does in fact learn it. But He wants it for himself. He wants it for control. He is engaged in personal magic, not sacred magic. He's a sorcerer, a bokor. And as this happens, as Moses enacts his cunning little plans to get the black mud sound, uh, the narration goes like this. The practice of the left hand had now arisen to the level of that of the right hand. As the distinguished musicologist Fats Waller was to comment later, quote, formerly the right hand was given all the work and the left hand shifted for itself, thumping out a plain octave or common chord foundation. Now it's more evenly divided and the left hand has to know its stuff. Now, that's an actual quote from Fats Waller, and it is actually getting at something that the Harlem Stride School of Jazz Pianists, James P. Johnson, Willie the Lion Smith, Duke Ellington uh, and Fats Waller himself, you know, their whole thing was developing the left hand. So instead of oh, just- Oh, so he's talking about the actual left he's hand. He's talking about actual, <laughs> yes. He's right. talking about the, the what your actual hands do when you play piano and the Harlem Stride style, this new style of the 20s is more exciting because the left hand all of a sudden is doing all of this acrobatic shit. It's not just a support. 
And, uh, you know, Willie the Lion Smith liked to taunt pianists as having a broken left hand. Oh, yeah, those one-handed pianists. Right. Those guys are nowhere, right? And so all of these dudes took a lot of pride in their powerful left hand. And so what Waller was talking about was simply the change in style. What's new in your, your stride style? Oh, we got the left hand going. But you see how Reed's woven it into this sort of occult narrative of left hand path and right hand path. Now, of course, you know, if, if I were being a dull literalist, I would be like, well, uh, Ishmael Reed completely misunderstood the import of Fats Waller's stylistic comments. No, he's he got to switch playful. planes. Yeah, yeah. he's switch. Yeah, he's switching up his planes. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, oh, that's that's utter genius. That is so cool. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize that when I read it. I thought he was I thought he was just imputing like goofing, making up a quote nope. uh, about Fats Waller's and, ideas about magic. But and this is that a makes thing perfect sense this, as you read this book. Like there are some things that are, are ridiculous non facts, but some things that are actually true. But right. recontextualize. And you have this feeling in reading this book of seeing connections everywhere. Exactly. And you don't know which ones are safely dismissible as poetic fancy and which ones are actually real. And that uncertainty, you know, the, the emotional complement of that is a kind of paranoia where you don't know what you're looking at or pedophilia at least yeah yeah and it, that's it, and that's a feeling that any magician is very familiar with and indeed i think is like paranoia is the occupational hazard of magic and pareidolia is the place you want to be the the well no actually pareidolia means seeing patterns that aren't real but yeah. of course they're not real in the corporeal sense but they're real in the incorporeal sense that's the thing pareidolia is the magician's friend uh, that is the right word I'm using, right? Pareidolia? Parid Pareidolia is where you see like faces and clouds or whatever. Seeing patterns yeah. where no patterns exist, quote unquote. But of course, yeah. if I see a face in the clouds, well... I, it what, exists in your mind. It ex it, well, it exists in the shape of the clouds as I see it. There's a, yeah. there's a face shape in the clouds. Yeah. You can't deny well, and that. It's, and, and getting back to what Lionel says, it's useful to assume that everything exists. That a face in the right. clouds it exists. It's a face in the clouds. But the question is, in what sense or on what plane? Exactly. And that's what the Stoics were getting at when some things don't exist but insist. Well, insofar as they insist, they exist. Um, but they're not real in the same sense. And it's a question yes. of senses. It's a question of plane. Planes means is a cult for sense. In what sense do you mean that? Oh, when I look at it in that sense, when I take Fats Waller's quote, out of its context and put it here, it gains a new sense. It doesn't right. need to coincide with the original sense. It's a new connection. And the wonder is that such connections are possible at all in our universe. The fact that such connections are possible tells us something about the implicit order of things. It hints that there's more to this reality than we normally see. Instead of just poo-pooing such connections, we should at least celebrate their possibility as a wonderful, wonderful, miraculous thing. And you know what I think what about reality it is suggesting is our old standby, the aesthetic universe. Exactly. Yeah. Because these connections exist as aesthetic entities. That right. As I am reading mumbo jumbo and I am experiencing that kind of it's a tasty paranoia, delicious paranoia, not a bad paranoia. Pronoia is another word that's been used. Uh, 
pronoia, which is yeah. like good paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. Where I'm participating in this wonderful unfolding tapestry of connections and resonances and sympathies. That is an aesthetic feeling. And we're getting back to like, what's the difference between, you know, good conspiracy and bad conspiracy? What's the difference between, uh, you know, mumbo jumbo and QAnon? Um, I said before that perhaps what is needed to avoid a kind of an unbalanced conspiracy mindedness is more magic. But I think you could just as easily say what is needed is more art, more yeah. of an aesthetic sensibility and ability to appreciate these things on the aesthetic level, which is not the same thing as saying that they're not real. Like, oh, well, you know, it's representation, but it's not real in the same sense that, you know, a representation of a piece of fruit, wax fruit is not a real piece of fruit. But in the realm of art, those kinds of distinctions don't obtain. Right. It's just that what is real, the paranoia the or pronoia, is an aesthetic response to connections that are real. They're real, though, on the aesthetic plane. But what emerges, I think, from Ishmael Reed's novel is the feeling that reality itself is constituted in those aesthetic connections. Yeah. What Jess Grew is inviting people to do is to dance and to get down and to join in the fun, to party. And what is that? That is an aesthetic action. Getting down is a, a leaving yourself open to the energies of music and dance that are penetrating you, uh, that are yeah. possessing you like a loa. Right. As Owen Barfield would say, it's you're saving the appearances, right? You're including the appearance of things in your theory of what things actually are. And the, the tendency as moderns is always to dismiss appearances as illusions and to look yeah. for something behind appearances that is the real, real. There's a moment in the book where he writes, in Egypt at the time of Osiris, every man was an artist and every artist was a priest. It wasn't until later that art became attached to the state to do with as it pleased. And there are other moments too where he equates art and magic, that this magic, this magical religion that we've uh, almost lost is actually art and that all artists are practicing that. That tells us yeah. something about the connection between the imaginal or the magical and the aesthetic. Children yep. get this, okay? So I've just seen another instance of this. I remember telling this story once. We were watching Stranger Things, uh, my family and I. Uh, so uh, Fiona is a huge Stranger Things fan. She first watched it when she was like four, and she just loved that show. But a cat dies in season two, and she was really, really sad about it. So I said, well, the cat, it wasn't a real cat that died. It was like a puppet cat that died. And she's like, it was a puppet? I, and I said, yeah. She's like, did the hand die? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> she knew something died, Right. Right. There was death. Death was real. Yeah. So if the cat didn't die, what died? Then what died? Children know what we forgot, which is that the aesthetic is part of the real. So if I see a death on stage, the actor might not be dead, but death was present. The form of death was present. And so something died. And it's a question of being able to parse out these plainer distinctions yes. so that you can see where things lie. And that's, in a sense, the, I guess, in a sense, you could argue that a conspiracy theorist is a child that just never grew up and that mm. the anti-conspiracy theorists, the people who can't even see the poetic truth in a conspiracy theory are the people who grew up too much, right? <laughs> Who've lost their childhood. <laughs> so it's like, we got to walk in the middle here, right? Find the middle zone. 
there's a great passage that I want to read that gets at, you know, something we've been talking about. You can have the same thing, the same dances, the, you know, Azirian dances, but they could be used by the right hand or the left hand, and they will be totally transformed. The black mud sound will be present in one, but not the other. And in the story of Moses that we're told, it culminates in him giving a concert that goes badly. Right. Um, so I'll read this. Well, the night of the concert, the people were herded into the concert grounds. Non-attendance was equated with treason. Moses began to play Jethro's songs, but they weren't coming across like the way they had at the old man's fireplace. They sounded flat, weak, deprived of the low-down rhythms that Jethro had brought to them. An applause sign was placed up and Moses received applause. A man who didn't go along was taken outside and beaten with flails and crooks. From a box seat, Thermuthis and her expatriate friends applauded loudest of all. One Greek said he would return to Greece and announce that Moses sounded even better than Osiris must have sounded himself. Moses then played the songs of Jethro with the words, but his voice sounded feigned, his mimic of Jethro's dialect phony. And at that point, some grain was thrown up on the stage and people were imitating snakes by hissing. Hissing is spelt with like 64 letters. It's like, yeah, there's an awful lot of onomatopoeia in this book. Yeah. That corner of the park was beaten till blood streamed down the aisles. Well, during the intermission, Moses went backstage and his Atonist supporters, ass-kissers who traveled with him everywhere he went since his return to Egypt, were drinking beer and told Moses how good he was and began to pat him on the back. Moses knew something was wrong. He was told by one of the ushers that fights were breaking out in the stadium and that they would have to call for the army if the violence got out of control. Don't worry, Moses said. I will next do the songs and dances I learned from the work, the sacred book. And that way, the people will rejoice and love me, and young girls will follow me everywhere. Well, Moses went on stage and began gyrating his hips and singing the words of the Book of Thoth, and a strange thing happened. The ears of the people began to bleed. Some of them charged the stage and tried to get at Moses, but the Atnus thugs beat them back. One Azirian priest could no longer take it. He and several others knew what Moses had learned and knew how it was using him. Moses couldn't understand. Why hadn't the rites and the words and the dances congealed? Why hadn't the contagion broken out? Why weren't people talking in strange tongues and having happy convulsions? And then at that point, Moses decides to unleash the black mud sound, but it comes out in the form of the atomic bomb. And this passage to me is really interesting. The way that it pictures, for one thing, a degraded... Call back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, actually. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely <laughs> right. When the Nazis get their hands on the Ark of the Covenant and seek to unleash its power, and of course, it just destroys them in, in something like a nuclear blast. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a really, that's a, I mean, and that's a resonance. I doubt very much that that's causal that, that uh, you know, Steven Spielberg read Mumbo Jumbo and was like, I'm yeah, of course. <laughs> but I find this whole passage interesting for one thing, because it shows up the idea of music as something, or art generally, as something like, leave it to the professionals, right? Yeah. The, right. the people up there on stage who are going to play for you, and you are going to sit there passively and listen. Like, this is a complaint that is often raised against classical music culture, is the extreme passivity of the audience vis-a-vis -vis the musicians. Now, everybody listening to the show knows that, 
you know, the Western art music tradition is my home and native land, uh, that I love it, that I grew up playing it, and I still am super attached to that tradition. But it's true that, you know, you see in the development of Western music, something like an atonist takeover. You read about audience behavior in the 18th century. It's nothing like modern concert behavior. Right. Composers and musicians are always complaining that people are doing their thing out there in the audience, you know, eating oranges and flirting and fighting and shouting for the prima donna assoluta to repeat a virtuoso concert number, all of these undignified things. And you can see the whole development over the last couple of hundred years of Western concert etiquette as a clamping down on the spontaneous expressivity of people involved in a musical event. You see the same thing when you read about uh, Shakespeare and the, yeah. the performances of the Globe Theater, which were really participatory. And you say, where's the music in a Atonist performance? In an Atonist performance, the music is only up there on the stage. We're leaving that job to the professionals. But in a Jess Grew context, then the music is everywhere. It's in everybody. Right. And the performers are simply um, perhaps first among equals or they're leading the dance, but they are not disenfranchising their listeners from their share of the musical experience, from participation. And, you know, getting back to what I was saying before about like, you know, we need more to, to kind of correct some of the imbalances of a sort of a bad magical thinking, participating in an aesthetic universe, an aesthetic world, like the Atnes direction is entirely away from that. It's towards the reifying of art as a special professional skill that some people have and other people don't. And you have to go to certain schools to acquire those particular skills and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I am a part of the Atnes conspiracy, although I would like to think that I am a deep cover agent for the Osirian mysteries. I would like to imagine that. But there's no two ways about it. Academia is like lock, stock, and barrel, an atonist ploy. By the way, I would like to point out in the midst of all of this, uh, all of what I'm saying about art and blah, 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 how easily I've slipped into talking about atonism as if that's a real thing and not just something that Ishmael Reed made up for this novel. And this is getting back to that idea of a hyperstition. And I know you wanted to return to that. So maybe now would be a time yeah. to do that. Hyperstition is a belief that in participating in it, you make it true. And this book itself, it is, as you say, a hyperstition, that its way of understanding the problems of race in America, problems in art, intellectual history, all of these things as the outcome of a long war of a group called the Atonists against the forces of plurality and pleasure and participation. Yeah. That's a fictional notion that actually works really well as theory. Like, I actually feel like that's a pretty sophisticated theory. And it doesn't bother me that it's not, quote unquote, true or real. It's a symbol. Yeah. It's a symbol. Therefore, it's what only art can do. And it's how art tells us how the world works. You know, there's that quote from Zadie Smith said, uh, the the goal of, uh, I'm paraphrasing again, the goal of a novel shouldn't be to tell you how the characters feel. It should be to tell you how the world works. Hmm. And um, the art tells us how the world works by creating symbols that don't need to have kind of a historical factual existence. Uh, you don't need an actual group 
of men who carried cards that read like Atonist on them for Atonism to exist. Just like you don't need to have an actual group that call themselves the Gnostics in order for Gnosticism to be something real in history. It was, and it hasn't been helpful the last 25 years of scholarship that have tried to eliminate the word Gnosticism as though it doesn't refer to anything. As weird as Hans Jonas' famous book on Gnosticism was, Gnostic religion, as as wrong as it was in certain sense, it put its finger on something that, even if we deny that it had actual existence, remains the kind of keynote of a whole group of concepts that are important to an understanding of religious history in the West. But anyways, uh, like... um, how does, okay, how does Reed, this is my segue, how does Reed accomplish this? Um, I think that- How one, does he do the trick? How does he do the trick? Well, I'm not going to pretend to know, and neither uh, will I pretend that Deleuze and Guattari knew, but they do have a concept that we haven't mentioned yet on the show. I think it's one of their most important contributions to philosophy, the concept of the minor in literature. Mm. And I just wanted to touch on that because this is the best example I've come across of how- minor literature works and what it can do. So for the reference here is um, Deleuze and Guattari's little known book on Kafka. Kafka, I'm translating the title, I don't know what it's called in English, Kafka for a minor literature, towards a minor literature. And um, the third chapter of this book is called, What is a Minor Literature? So the word minor is important here, and it comes up a lot in Thousand Plateaus, and it has to be understood in two ways, or in m- multiple ways. They are writing about the literatures of minorities, as in minority groups. So their entry point is the writings of Franz Kafka, who was a Jew living in Prague, writing in German. So he was like many times removed from, he wasn't in Germany writing in German, he was in Prague writing in German, because in Prague there was a powerful German minority. And so the concept of minor literature does have to do, in some sense, with what minorities write, what they create, the literary works they create. But it also has a musical connotation, right? The minor key, which is a deterritorialization of the major key, in a sense. So like the minor haunts the major. The minor is always kind of like the shadow of the major. And in a in a social context, the major or the molar for Deleuze and Guattari is the established status quo power structure of a particular society. And the minor occurs in those parts of that society that are excluded from those conduits of power. So Franz Kafka being a Jew in Prague was a bit of a nobody. He was on, on, in the margins of that society and he's writing. So there are three characteristics that Deleuze and Guattari attribute to minor literature. The first one was a deterritorialization of language. And they say that the best or strongest examples of minor literature are not examples of writers within a minority group writing in their own language, but writers within a minority group writing in the language of the majority. Because when they adopt the language of the majority, they distort it. And you can think about how African-American culture has reshaped and reinvented English. You were mentioning his uh, knack for onomatopoeia in the book. This playing with the sound of language, the sonic value of language, the purely musical aspect of language is immediately apparent to someone for whom language, the language is a second language, right? If I'm French-Canadian, when I learned English, I learned it 
aesthetically first. I'd hear it everywhere. I didn't know what the words meant, but I hear, heard it everywhere because I was in an Anglophone province. I grew up in Ontario. So everywhere I'm going, I'm hearing people going, I'm hearing all the sounds, but I don't know what the words mean. The aesthetic surface of the language is primary to someone for whom the language is a second language and a language in which you, you were immersed from birth, right? The second characteristic is the ubiquity of the political. And there's a way to misunderstand that and a way to understand it, I think, properly. is that in the literature of the majority, you have stories usually that deal with individuals and individuated situations. For example, a novel about two brothers fighting over the love of their father. Okay? Classic novel. And this drama, this individual chamber drama, occurs against the backdrop of the status quo, the way society works. So everybody knows what a brother is, how a brother should behave towards his father. Everybody knows what a father represents. And the father is, is going to separate, divide up the property between his sons when they die. And you have all this, all this stuff is kind of taken for granted. The minor writer who wants to write about individuals as well, about characters, cannot but write about the characters in a political way. Because the minor writer is excluded from the machinery of society, uh, of the majority, when they write about brothers fighting over the love of their father, it's impossible for them to do that without connecting the concept of brotherhood and fatherhood to the economic, social forces and historical forces that create these, that occasion these entities. So it's automatically political. The third and final characteristic of a minor literature is the development of a machine for collective expression. So in other words, what they mean by that is that since a minor literature doesn't have a canon presided by masters of, of a tradition, since there are no masters that the individual new writer has to imitate or go against or challenge or whatever, it's just a clamor of voices. And when a writer stands up and speaks in a minority, in a minor situation, they speak in their voice, but since their voice doesn't exist as an individuated acolyte of that bigger voice or as an imitation of that bigger voice, there's a challenge to that other voice of the masters, the writer can only speak in the name of his people, of his collective. The problem, though, is that since the actual elite of a minority collective is always trying to imitate the majority and fit into the majority, and you see that in this book all over, where he's criticizing the black community of selling out to the white or trying to be like the white community, the writers who are truly speaking in their own voice and therefore in the voice of their collective in the minority will be excluded from the elite of that minority so that a minor literature is always writing to a people that doesn't yet exist, a people that might come mm. about. And the act of writing is the act of creating that people, creating that new, that new world. And this book is, is that's the hyperstition is that he's, oh, that's this he's book. creating a, that is totally a this new book. black America that doesn't yet exist. He's calling, as Deleuze says, he's calling for a people to come. I think it's Paul Klee who said after a show once, he's like, the show's great. Le peuple manque, the, the people is missing. I have a great show, but I have no people in it, no people to come see it because my people doesn't exist yet. And then, of course, Deleuze's argument ultimately is that even writers operating within a majority, white American writers, let's say, or, you know, white Canadian writers who are still operating within or male writers, everyone has a duty to become minor and to, to mm. find their own language, to look at 
those minor literatures, see what they're doing. What, what the minor literature is showing us is what all great art does or should do. And also to study minor literature allows us to see the subversive element, even in molar works of art. And ultimately, it's not a dichotomy. It's more like this is where you can see how the sausage is made. It's in those cases where you can mm. see what art can do at its best. And uh, Ishmael Reed's book is a masterpiece precisely because it shows us the hyperstitious nature of art making and of creation. And it makes that move to conjure the people that don't exist for yet, to conjure its as yet non-existent audience. It explicitly thematizes that at the end. So the whole story has been about, I mean, the hero of the story is Papa Labas. And Black Herman, who, by the way, was a real person. Yeah, he was a black that. stage magician. They're the protagonists and, you know, they're facing off against shadowy cabals and, you know, Von Vampton and his sidekick, Hubert Safecracker Gould. Uh, and there's all these wacky sort of shenanigans that happen. And the book fully hits us with the cartoony aspects of many of the plot developments. Like a lot of the things that happen in this story are not exactly to be taken straight. There's always a certain kind of like a, almost reminds me of like Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. Or like, you know, like those goofy old cartoons where everything is a trope and yet the trope is mined for its absurdity. Like Dudley Do-Right is a trope, like in that sort of cartoon world. This book does that kind of stuff all the time playing situations very cartoony. Uh, and I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. But in any event, after pages and pages of the, the Wallflower Order's attempts to suppress Just Grew and Black Herman and Papa Labas attempt to find the tax for Just Grew, it turns out that a Muslim guy who might remind one a little bit I heard bit there was of, a historical figure. Uh, yeah, Abdul Rahid is his name in, in the book, but he was based on an book. actual... Uh, one of the first Muslim converts in, in Black America, uh, that at least in Manhattan. I heard that there was some kind of reference there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it feels like one of those Romana Clay moves. Yeah. And, you know, the point that he's making is that these guys can be Atonists too. And ultimately, it's Abdul who burns the Book of Thoth. Um, anyway, after that denouement, and it seems as if Jess Grew fails, eventually... In the epilogue, we discover a world where Jess Grew has fulfilled its mission, where the whole world has been overtaken by Jess Grew. Bapa Labas now, we realize, is deathless, you know, right. and uh, he is still unchanged, giving lectures in African-American studies at some college campus where people listen to his stories with an indulgent smile, little realizing that he is telling them the true secret history of the world and how this world they now inhabit, the Jess Grew world, how it came to be. Yeah, It is in this novel, a utopian gesture towards the end, opening up to um, a future which is taking place, chronologically speaking, around the time that Reed actually wrote this novel, but it's not quite the America in which Reed wrote his novel. He is um, showing how Jess Grew conjured its own future in the diegetic reality of the book, but in so doing is making the gesture of like the book, Mumbo Jumbo, conjuring its audience, conjuring its people into existence. Mm -hmm. 
you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.